But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that long. Darn it. Okay. Darn it. Well, we're not going to ever get to it if we don't get to the hey, start point. Here we go. Here we go. Let's see now. Uh, There's a starting point? Yeah. No. Well, it's, uh, I don't know. It's something that's long been a question. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, I think most people are wishing for the ending. Part, I was going to say, yeah, that's, yeah, that's quite what frankly, most people I think, are interested yeah. in. Yeah. Um, turtles, man, turtles. I don't know. Oh. This is just, you know, I, I'm going to get myself in trouble with listeners and all sorts of folks. Well, then don't do it. By saying that, you know, so there are a great many people who are passionate about. There's this fly a pet thing. What's it called? Help me remember. Pilots and paws. Pilots and paws. All right. Very, very well intentioned uh, operation, but it's always struck me as a little bit odd that people, I don't know, given dogs, needy dogs rides in airplanes. Okay. All right. I guess. Well, now we've taken it to what's the term? The. the, the Reductive and observable, or something like that. Um, if you uh, see, you're raising a flap over these flippers. Yeah, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. Uh, the, this is a story from Avweb. Uh, endangered sea turtles need. Oh man, it wasn't just Avweb. It was all over yeah, it the. Wasn't news. really need GA transport. So what's the story here? You because you maybe you guys should tell it more fairly than than I'm going to. I just I just wonder, you know, if they're <clears throat> they're flying these from from New England, right? Yeah, down huh? to southeast, you know, basically kind of Florida-ish. Yeah, um, um, turtles. Turtles are being subbed in Baltimore, North Carolina, Texas, Louisiana, and Florida. I just can, can they throw in a few lobsters? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think that these are food turtles. I don't think are they? <laughs> I, I understand, but. Well, at least not for humans. How are they packaged? I mean, I, yeah, I get, yes, these are my, these are my questions, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so they were all packed in a little bit of water and a padded container, so they a, wouldn't get hurt in transit. <laughs> and uh, but but there was no you know lemon butter sauce available at all. <laughs> oh, juicy. Okay, good. And, this will take and, some of the heat and, off of me from my, my comment about <laughs> pilots and paws. All and right. these 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 uh, uh, aquatic creatures are getting airlifted because uh, their species are. Both kind of on uh, on the edge of exi- of extinction, uh-huh. and really weird sea conditions uh, up around uh, of off Cape Cod push these about four hundred more than four hundred. They said they were stranded along the North Shore beaches uh, of Cape Cod when they were really headed for waters off those places that they've been flown to, particularly off Florida, mm-hmm. uh, North Carolina. Uh, so. Yeah, there's been some GA aircraft step up. Uh, more than half of them, last I read, had already uh, had already been treated to the transportation and were in their rehab facilities in the no. new locations. David, uh, Jeb, it sounds like David actually kind of takes this seriously and thinks. This is- well, it, it, it is a serious thing. I mean, all things considered. Yeah, but right. you guys are going to leave me hanging out to dry. No, I'm not going to leave you hanging Go out ahead. to dry. But, but you know, some practical considerations here for a second. Again, how are they packaged? Are they just loose? <laughs> Are, are, are we? Are they allowed to like roam around the cabin? Um, secondly, there's perhaps, snakes on a plane joke here. Snakes, I'm snakes working on, on it. You keep telling reptiles on a plane. Yeah. Um, but I think maybe more importantly, um, what does the lack of pressure do to them? Good question. There we go. Um, that to me would be a, a very interesting question for somebody, a, a marine biologist, so to speak, uh, uh, perhaps. Yeah. Um, 
But seriously, is there? I don't know what what kind of operational limits there might there might be, but are there any? Yeah. So well, they may be like dogs in that when uh, you get a little altitude uh, 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 with them, and they uh, get sleepy really fast and nod off. How do you and know? That, how do hmm. how do you know when a turtle is sleeping? This is what I want to know. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't think you'd want them to be uh, uh, to be too drowsy unless uh, the water's shallow enough for them to sit on the bottom because they're air breathers. Yeah, and there's a potential for them to drown if they can't keep their head above uh-huh, water. Uh-huh. So, so uh, and if you do a heavy pushover, do they all float up in the back seat? Probably not. Well, I think I would imagine they were all containerized and and packaged and then netted Uh so that they're going to stay put through the whole flight, just like you'd want anything else in the back of your airplane, uh, including human air, human beings, which is, you know, reminiscent of that, that that, uh, viral video from several years ago where the the guys are doing pushovers or something like that. And the dog in the backseat just kind of starts floating up. That was a camera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I, w- I would hope that these are packaged in some kind of container that would, you know, make them um, impervious. Well, I won't say impervious, but, but make them self-contained, essentially. Um, and that those containers, one or two or more, are in fact strapped down somehow. Yeah, according to the uh, folks at the New England Aquarium, they were packed in uh, the foam containers. Ah. And uh, these aren't little tiny turtles, guys. These are three pounds to ten pound uh, critters. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, fairly good size. Would would probably make a couple of good bowls of soup. But uh, there's the wrong kind for that, I'm afraid. Yeah. Okay. So... So so the, the, so is this program still ongoing or is is it is it done or the last the most recent thing I could find on it was uh from a couple of days ago uh Tuesday actually so uh and that was uh, the news that more than half of them had already made the trip courtesy of a C130 airlift and a, and a volunteer general aviation pilot Wait a second there was a C130 involved in this Yeah uh Air National Guard airplane I'm, I'm sorry, Coast Guard airplane. Huh. Oh, you'd think that they could get 400 sea turtles. You know, oh, yeah. Our tax dollars at work. They're well. Just, I, okay. I'm I mean, just, they they, they got to yeah, get in their I mean, training hours. They might as well make a trip right. from, uh, from you know, there once were some turtles in Nantucket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace. I had to cut him off because I didn't know yeah, where that was yeah, going. I don't know. That could have gone anywhere scary. Uh, Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you this afternoon from uh, man snowy but well-fed uh, Papa Papa, New Hampshire. Uh, Epic the the quick-thinking Jack Hodgson. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It doesn't take a lot of quick-thinking, David. I've known you for a while. I was on. There I once was were some turtles in Nantucket. Yeah. They had to be flown south before they kick the bucket yeah and that's as far as i'm that's okay we'll work on it we, we got <laughs> yeah. a little time we'll, we'll work on it some more i'm here with my two good friends i, I just wanted to be cut off also yeah well, yeah okay that's a wise thing too I'm here with my two good friends to uh, talk about turtles and airplanes for for a few minutes here uh is uh, one of those voices out there is uh is the uh, you, you always have to be watchful for dave higdon who's talking to us from somewhere near wichita actually in wichita kansas how you doing david 
Uh, talking to you from an undisclosed location similar to the last few hundred times. That's right. Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, having a lovely holiday weekend, yeah. as I hope everybody is, and who won't hear this until closer to Christmas. So, hope you have a Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> See, yeah, I, I, would, I wasn't going to go there. Yeah, I know. I wasn't. Usually I wasn't. It's, usually it's uh, Jeb, but uh, we're, yeah. we're going to try and fix this. But uh, but just to give people context, we are recording this on Black Friday. This is a uh, Friday right after Thanksgiving here in the And United it's States. saving us from a fate worse than mall shopping. Yeah, well, no, I believe me, I've avoided that. So, uh so yeah, you had a nice time, David. I, I hear you went out and hanged out, hung out with some friends, and uh, and uh, ate some turkey and drank some bourbon. I understand. <laughs> sample a little bourbon, sample a little scotch, sample a little wine, uh, and then uh, said, "I gotta go home now." <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Well, that sounds good. And my other good friend here is uh, Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. What are you doing, Jeb? I am uh, basking in the glow of having eaten too much yesterday. Yeah. Tell me about um, it. Tell yeah, me about it's, it. it's it's been pretty brutal. My kids are down, and so we've uh, been trying to outdo each other. Um, but uh, I've never met your boy. I've met your daughter a couple times. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, very cool. That's nice. Yeah, yeah my, I, keep, uh, I, I keep telling the both of them together. Remind uh, is a reminder of why there are not three of them. <laughs> okay, I'm here uh, in the, here at Papa Papa, and uh, all, all four of my siblings is five of us, and we all got together along with a couple of the nieces and nephews, and uh, uh, roasted a turkey. And uh, my brother roasted one of my brothers roasted the turkey because he he's the best cook of the batch. And uh, although oh I made, you cooked it, I was thinking of a comedy roast. Yeah, no, no, no. And then I uh, I made uh, a couple of my world famous apple pies, and uh, that was good. And uh, we only have his word for the existence of these apple pies. <laughs> well, we only have his word for the, 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 their uh, world famousness. Also. Well, yeah, oh, true, but that's. I mean, if you Google, which I'm going to, if you Google Jack Hodgson <laughs> apple pie. No, you don't need to put in the Jack Hodgson. Just put in world famous. I'm not sure if my if Google knows of my. I'm actually typing right now. World famous. Nah. <laughs> uh, apple pie by grandma. Apple Paula's apple pie filling recipe. Uh, the Paula's truth of the matter thing. is that it, when it comes to world famousness, my meatloaf is a little bit more up there. So, uh, but. Uh, uh, None of which are available on the in-flight menu. So, yes. And uh, okay, so but if you do, if you do type, if you Google "world famous meatloaf Jack Hodgson," I'll let you figure out what you get. And uh, anyways, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> anyways, well, I'm curious now. What does it say when I say "world famous apple pie Jack Hodgson"? Let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. Oh, oh, there you go. Oh no! I come when you t- when you Google world fam- world famous apple pie Jack Hodgson, you get listings about my world famous meatloaf. So there you go. Um, anyway, tonight on diners, drive-ins, and dives. Airplanes, airplanes. They want us to talk about airplanes. Some uh, some guy, some some computer at the at, in Google's complex has just registered a slight uptick in the incidence of the pre- the prevalence of. Searching for meatloaf, world famous. And yeah, no, well, you know, so, you know, someday, sometime, just just prior to Christmas, when this episode finally makes it out there, um, you know, world famous apple pie will trend on Google and okay, on but Twitter. I, I, I got, I got to do this. I, I just got to do this. Yeah, which Christmas? <laughs> uh, once again, and I, this is just going to be a, yeah, this is just going to be a thing forever now. I know um, UAVs, drones are in the news, um, and. Uh, 
I don't know. I just want to talk about this for a few minutes here. Um, uh, who was it? Jeb, you posted a piece about um, defining aircraft, and I assume this is somehow related to drones, is it? Uh, yes, it is. And, um, and so who has defined the, aircraft, and how have they defined it? Well, the NTSB of all people. Now, you got to keep in mind that in addition to its accident... Normally such uh, level-headed people. Well, yeah, kind of. Well, that's a whole other topic too. Um, but keep in mind, the, the the NTSB has a role that is actually larger than the, its role in investigating um, aviation, well, transportation accidents generally, and aviation accidents specifically. Mm -hmm. It also has a role of being the agency that um, adjudicates slash arbitrates um, uh, enforcement disputes brought to it. Um, elevated to it, perhaps, we should say, uh, enforcement disputes between the FAA and, say, an airman. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in, in the instant case, what the NTSB has done is look at a, um, a case the FAA brought against an operator of a drone. This is uh, an individual by the name of Raphael Perker. And um, apparently the, the Perker was... Um, flying a drone uh, did so in a manner that uh, raised the attention of the FAA and the FAA did not like uh, and brought an enforcement case against Perker. Perker, um, I think it initially basically argued that um, you can't regulate me because you don't have any regulations to regulate me. Uh, you certainly don't have any regulations on drones, wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, so how can you bring an enforcement in action against me? And one way or another, this was appealed to or, <clears throat> or automatically went to the NTSB. And one of the arguments in the Perker case had to do with, what the hell is an aircraft? Um, the, the NTSB has the jurisdiction to um, um, look at the way the FAA applies its own regulations, and the, one of the regulations in question has to do with the FAA's ability to regulate, quote, aircraft, unquote. Okay. So then we get to the question of whether a drone is a, quote, aircraft. And um, basically what the NTSB came out and said a few weeks slash days ago is that uh, an aircraft is any device used for flight, which in its extreme, uh, perhaps absurd uh, um, uh, limits, uh, involves Frisbees and paper airplanes. And we don't necessarily need nor want to have to have FAA-approved Frisbees or paper airplanes so uh, some people have started kind of scratching their heads saying, what does the word aircraft really mean? Mm -hmm. You can't restrict it to something capable of carrying a human being because then drones would not fit into this category if that's in fact what, what, uh, uh, what is wanted. Um, but you can't just say anything that flies is an aircraft also because we're, we're again back to the uh, uh, absurdum of uh, paper airplanes and frisbees so that's why I posted this mm -hmm. so yeah so it's a pretty broad definition it's a very broad definition oh and and, and, and to further uh, to add further to the intrigue and, and the confusion that could be with something so clearly stated is that in its own regulation 
of things that fly, the FAA is inconsistent in what it labels an aircraft. In what way? Well, it does not consider a Part 103 machine an aircraft. Right. It's it's an aeronautical conveyance. Part 103 being basically what people think of as an ultralight. The ultralight, well, specifically what what is an ultralight is the Part 103 Mm -hmm. rule. Uh, similarities of non-ultralights to what came out of that regulation, notwithstanding. Uh, And unlike what some people think, the FAA absolutely positively does regulate ultralight aviation, but only to the extent of defining what it considers to be an ultralight for the application of the other existing regulations that ultralight pilots have to follow. Right. And don't have to follow. For example, there are no medical requirements for piloting ultralights. There are no skill or flight training requirements for flying an ultralight. If you're dumb enough, you can go out, buy one, buy a kit, put it together, and try to teach yourself to fly. Uh, a lot of people have tried. Uh, some have survived. Uh, you know, some didn't. But the FAA doesn't define that as an aircraft. Uh, in a sense, but the NTSB does. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons this is becoming an issue, um, moving on to another story here, um, this is from CNN.com, um, quoting the first couple of graphs here. Um, more. Uh, let's see, now it starts out by saying, what's the headline here? Let's see, the headline is, Drones are almost crashing into planes. Uh, this is a story bylined Katie Lobosco um, of uh, CNN Money. Uh, uh, you're not going crazy. That could have been a drone outside your airplane window. More and more pilots are reporting that they're encountering drones during flight. The number of these reports have ballooned this year. In October, 41 pilots reported seeing a drone or an unmanned aircraft during flight. That's up from just five in April, according to data released by the Federal Aviation Administration. Right now, pause, pause on that for yeah, just no, a second. Yeah, that's as far as I'm going to go. That's, what do you think? That's not through October 41 reports. That's in October yeah, 41 yeah. reports. Right, right. Now, I, I got to figure that at least part of this is just they're being reported more often, not that it's happening more often or, or not. What do you think? I, I think it's happening more often because yeah. if it had I been happening both, before, actually. it would have been reported. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's both. I think, um, uh, first of all, there are more drones out there and and uh, the more of them being flown and more of them are being flown close to airports and more of them are being flown close to airplanes. I also think um, pilots are perhaps more uh, attuned uh, to look for them or, or see them and, and perhaps also report them. It so amazes it, me that they can even be seen. That's one of part of the thing that puzzles me. You know, when the news tells the, you see these news, these stories on on the t- video news, TV news, um, they often illustrate them with pictures of like a predator drone or or, or that kind of thing. But that's yeah, not really no, what we're that's talking. That's not what's happening. Now. We're talking about quadcopters here. All right, mm-hmm. some of them are fairly big, but they're still small. All right, um, and I'm I'm surprised that these even be seen when the closing, you know, when the uh, the relative airspeeds are are you know in the <clears> two hundred miles an hour. Well, keep keep in mind, you know how we how we see things uh, one of the ways we see things <clears throat> is uh, relative motion out of our peripheral vision right uh, and the, the the corollary of course is if it if it if we perceive it to be in motion then it's likely not going to collide with us yeah but we all know how hard it is oftentimes to even see a full full size 172 you know i agree a full size 172 that's that's today's title 
<laughs> well, to me, that re- that registers a little perspective on how close these things have become to some yeah. of the aircraft yeah. okay. reporting them. Yep, exactly. Uh, uh, and th- there seems to be a disconnect uh, among the people uh, that are in this debate. Uh, for example, the uh, Academy of Model Aeronautics uh, membership folks, the guys that have been out there flying radio-controlled models and obeying what existed in the way of, of, uh, of FAA guidelines for their use and operating you know, pretty cooperatively with that set of guidelines. Uh, now, and, and this was just a hobby, okay? Uh, and when I hear them... People say, "Well, you know, they've been uh, hobbyists, been flying them years for years without these regulations, and they haven't had any problem. So why do we need them for the commercial use?" Well, you just said what, the words that create the dividing line between an ultralight pilot and a commercial pilot, between the uh, Academy of Model Aeronautics member and somebody that wants to turn out a business doing, say, aerial real estate photography or survey work or something else, is that you want to do it for hire and you want to do it in locations where some of that other aeronautical activity that you mentioned is not allowed to happen because Mm -hmm. they're not allowed to fly commercial for commercial purposes, period. So I'm not impressed by the uh, by the argument that there are really no regulations needed here, that it just should be left to the states or uh, to the industry to work out because we already have a population of users that don't even know that there are guidelines in existence and that if they're within five miles of an airport, they're in violation of them, let alone within 500 feet of an airplane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the third story in this little, little uh, trifecta here is uh, from uh, EAA.org. Um, it says the UAS industry anticipates FAA regulation. And uh, according to, this is dated a couple days ago, according to a recent Wall Street Journal article, proposed regulations regarding commercial use of small unmanned aerial systems will require UAS operators to possess at least a private pilot certificate and operate the devices in daylight, etc. There's more here, but... Uh, um, is that, is, that, is that the good? Is that the good way to go, David? Why are you laughing? Well, because uh, the uh, EAA article here does not hint at the level of screaming going on among the people who are proponents of uh, using uh, un- unmanned aircraft for commercial purposes. The idea of having to uh, engage in learning to fly, learning anything about the airspace, uh, about mixing with other aircraft is uh, just sending them up the wall. And it's going to kill the whole prospect of anybody making any money on this. And my first reaction to that is, okay, I, I'm, I'm not averse to killing money-making uh, as averse to killing money-making pros, uh, prospects as I am averse to killing people. Yeah, Jeb. Wow. Um, I guess a couple of thoughts. One is, um, if you're flying a drone for commercial purposes and you're doing it with a private pilot certificate, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and of course, now it's defined by the NTSB as an aircraft. Um, so you're flying a commercial aircraft with a private pilot certificate. I need to sit down and think about that one a little bit more. Um, I want to know whether you need to have a third class medical. 
Oh, exactly. Exactly. These are small uh, aircraft. I think they qualify as LSAs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can't see the twinkle but in my eye as I say that. Yes. David, no. 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 I. 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 I get that. I get that. I, I'm. I'm really trying to think about this. You know, in a, in a holistic fashion. Um, so there's there's all that going on. There's of course you know what constitutes a commercial purpose. Um, I would. You know, on several levels, very much like to see the FAA require a pilot certificate, as we know it, quote unquote, um, uh, to operate one of these for commercial purposes. One, um, at least they would have some. The, the the operator would have some knowledge of the regulations, would have some knowledge of procedures and and how to simply go about something like this mm-hmm. through through his or her training um perhaps um equally important we might see an uptick in in pilot training which would be a good thing um well whether whether I people guess, but- you know whether people um get their private pilot certificate to fly a drone is not really my concern it's you know they should just do it anyway I guess thirdly, um, and speaking strictly from a personal standpoint, I think, especially when it comes to uh, the kind of drones that we're very familiar with, which is the the quadcopter or something like that, um, should we also be talking about a rotorcraft rating, uh, and should we also be talking about a multi-engine rating? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Or, or just, will there simply be a drone rating of some kind? I, you know, the whole thing is is again we've we've you've gotten a little bit absurd here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to kind of bring it back down to to um, uh, sea level, if you will, ground level, perhaps <clears throat> be a better uh, better way to put it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, they're really trending away from from the one hundred three rules. They're really trending away from. What has been the historical norm, which is uh, a radio-controlled model, is not regulated, and the FAA's laid out the reasons why. Um, and now there's all this talk about you know this whole new body of, of regulation and of uh, no, you can't do this kind of stuff. And uh, I just kind of wonder if the FAA's got the horsepower to do all that. Well, I guess there's that. You know, it's it's yeah. And safety issues are, are one. F- oh, hang on, hang on. Sorry, had a little video queued up here that suddenly decided to play audio. Um, so uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. Safety. There certainly are safety factors here. Are there other reasons why GA pilots care about any of this stuff? Um, yeah, I think there are. I think um, some drone use could and perhaps already has conceivably taken a business away from legitimate <clears throat> certificated operators of mm-hmm. small aircraft. Uh, I can think of um, um, airborne photography, especially real estate-oriented photography. Uh, I can think of um, um, some you know, mapping and, and, and not necessarily private pilots, but certainly pilots, uh, mapping agricultural operations, other kinds of, of flying that is done in, in small airplanes by certificated pilots uh, is probably being eliminated, uh, at least in, uh, uh, perhaps over the long term. 
by the proliferation of drones, which you know basically just a, simply a new technology as opposed to uh, you know some uh, um, sea change in, in uh, um, needs or, or markets or anything else, um, kind of creating its own market, if you will. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there's a, definitely an impact. Uh, uh, putting aside the obvious safety implications, which is re- where you really want to go. Okay. David, wrap this up, please. Well, I, uh, I, I, I see no logic in requiring so much training and uh, uh, practice to um, drive a manned aircraft through the airspace if it's going to be open up, particularly non-line of sight, to uh, people who don't have the skin in the same skin in the game that you do, right. and not require some level of demonstration of competency, demonstration that they know the rules and regulations about the airspace, which is where we already see problems existing uh, with people who aren't even you know really using them for commercial purposes, and some of the guys using them for commercial purposes would be in violation of the same model guidelines by flying them over crowds of people. Uh, something, if it's going to be used in that kind of environment, that uh, it provides a testament to the uh, stability of the uh, machine and its safety features and uh, a return to a clear space feature so that if it loses contact with the uh, controller that it just doesn't go steaming off into the ether on its own at the whims of the winds. Those two things, I think, are necessary and mandatory. How you satisfy those is, is where they're going to have to work out some level of uh, compromise and, and uh, create creative compromise. Yeah. Jeb, that legendary sigh has earned you just a couple more words. What do you want to say? Um, insurance. Yeah, if there's another be, thing. If you're going to be flying these things over... As as this particular article talks about uh, uh, sports stadiums during football games or something like that, you're gonna be if you're gonna be doing that, um, shouldn't you have some kind of insurance to operate this thing? Um, you can you can bet your last gallon of hundred low lead that if you were banner towing or or sign casting or something like that over one of these stadiums back when you could, <laughs> yeah, right, uh, you would be required to have insurance. Yeah, so. So there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff going on here, and, and I can hear a lot of screams of "We don't want no regulation." Yeah, I get that. I, I'm I'm there. I got it. I uh, understood. But you know, I, there's a greater good here too. And and if we're we're seeing the an uptick like this in the number of uh, airline pilots or general pilots um, reporting near misses with UAVs, we got a problem. Yeah. And that's that's ultimately what the what this is all about. Yeah. Well, well, it should be all about. I'm not sure that uh, everybody in the FAA is on that page. Yeah, so, yeah right. there's some people out there that need extra large, extra absorbent bibs for all the salivating they're doing at the idea of taking over the kind of businesses yeah. Jeb yeah. mentioned. Yeah. Well, we first talked about UAVs almost 370 episodes ago. I suspect this is not the last time we're going to talk about it. So, uh, no. It's a thing. No question about it. It's a yep. thing. At uncontrolled airspace in the virtual hangar, the pilots were chatting, but then heard a bang or a noise of some kind from behind the tool shelf. Twas a man dressed in red, a quite jolly old elf. 
He opened his pack, and he flashed them a look, and he rummaged around, and he pulled out a book. The pilots all hoped there was something for them. They begged, Santa, look in your pack once again. Did you bring me a gadget? An Avgas container? He said, no, you've been bad. I've brought just the disclaimer. But Santa Claus smiled as he read to them there his message of wisdom and safety and care. The UCAP members, those wise old flyers, are speaking their very own thoughts and desires. The folks whom they work with might not feel the same, and that is all right. No one is to blame. The stories they tell and advice, while terrific, you take them as general and never specific. When you're in your plane and pilot in command, keep all of your training right there close at hand. Assess your own situation that day and fly your own airplane just like my sleigh. And they heard him exclaim as he flew out of sight, But you knew that already, so have a good flight. <laughs> Hi, this is Jack. We've said it before and it bears repeating that maybe the most pleasant surprise of doing this podcast all these years has been meeting our listeners at fly-ins and just wandering around at airports. You talking with us and sharing your aviation experiences has helped us broaden our knowledge and enjoyment of flying. Thank you. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that we also appreciate the financial support we get from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. So thanks for listening, and please make sure you track us down and say hi at the next fly-in. Hey, shout-outs. What do we got here? Uh, I'm going to go first. Uh, I've got, uh, I want to do a shout-out to, our, uh, to a, a colleague of ours, uh, a friend of the podcast, and, and just plain friend, uh, Ben Sclair of uh, General Aviation News, GA News. Um, has uh, published a story in his, I don't know if it's in the paper, but I, I saw it on their website yeah, um, just yeah. recently. Uh, he got an opportunity to uh, ride in the Blue Angels support plane, the uh, the Fat Albert, the C-130, uh, that's known as, as Fat Albert. Now, now many people, uh, not many, but, but uh, uh, you know, it's not incredibly unusual to get a ride in Fat Albert. David, I believe you got a ride in Fat Albert once. No, I flew in an F A eighteen. Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> well, then All you right. can't talk about it anymore. Though. Yeah, okay. Well, someone uh, who wasn't, anyways. Um, it's not incredibly because you get, but most people who get to ride in Fat Albert get to ride in the bench seats that are in the cargo section of Fat Albert. Uh, ben Sclair uh, got an opportunity to sit in one of the uh, cockpit jump seats and uh, actually watch the flight out the windows and uh, shoot some video. And uh, he's told the story and included some snippets of video um, in this uh, story on uh, on their website, generalaviationnews.com. Uh, 25 degrees nose down in Fat Albert is the headline. And uh, there's a, a quite dramatic uh, snip of a video here um, on uh, final approach. <laughs> and fortunately, it's not final, final approach. I, I've watched this video three or four times thinking, you know, I wonder what would happen if something went wrong at the last moment here when they're because they're like just going straight down at their. I mean, this looks like more like 45 degrees to me, but uh, they're going down. This is basically the way I land a 152. <laughs> to be honest with you, dive at the numbers, and 
but a 152, I can get to slow down. I, I guess they can get the one, the uh, 130 to slow down too. Anyways, congratulations to Ben for uh, for uh, we're jealous that he got to ride up in the cockpit of Fed Albert. And thanks yeah. for sharing that yeah. story. Very, very jealous. Yeah, yeah. Who else has got something? Who's next? David, well, I think you're up. Yeah, go ahead. Hats off to my uh, some some of the old folks, uh, friends over at uh, the Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine. Uh, which uh, has a piece in the December issue about the uh, early years, uh, the pioneering age of ultralights, as as the article is titled. And uh, it starts with a a brief description of of an engineer from Ohio who uh, strapped a chainsaw engine, two-cycle chainsaw engine, on a Icarus II hang glider, and stepped off the ground in front of the crowd at Oshkosh in 1976. Mm-hmm. Wasn't his first time to leave the ground in that particular aeronautical <clears throat> conveyance. Uh, they weren't allowed to call them aircraft. Uh, we didn't even know the term ultralight when that was happening, but uh, that set the whole world on fire. And that, uh, that gentleman's name was? John Moody, mm-hmm. who was uh, down at Sun and Fun flying yet again this year. He, he now lives nearby uh, Lakeland. And he and, flies very nearly those same aircraft, right? Yep, very nearly. Uh, I believe he's flying an Easy Riser now, which is an evolved version of the Icarus II. Uh, by wing hang glider where you sit in a sling seat, uh, push your engine uh, with tip rudders. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he also flies this great old uh, uh, American Aviation Eagle, uh, uh, which looks like a hang glider with a canard and chip rudders that droop down uh, yeah. instead of up. Uh, yeah, those are cool airplanes. We we did a one of the Sun and Fun dailies sitting next to them one time and uh, talked about them. They're they're, yeah. they're cool bits of history. Yeah, yep, and uh, the uh, the story, you know. Talks uh, pretty nicely about the uh, the early days of the uh, of the movement and uh, uh, what the museum at uh, uh, the Air and Space Museum has on this uh, particular era, including a pretty good selection of the engines uh, in the museum's collection. And uh, it was quite a time, wild and woolly. I bet it was. I bet it was. You should write a book, David. We need a book. We need a book. Yeah, you should tell that story. I mean, you've told it here on the podcast, uh, uh, but uh, anyway, something to think about. Yeah, so I, I agree. That's a great story in uh, Air and Space Magazine. Everyone should track it down. I believe it's in the magazine. I saw it on the website. Um, and uh, yep. um, Well, it, it, I have to tell you, you know, watching a buddy of mine, uh, one of my hang gliding friends from the Louisville area, try to emulate uh, what he had seen Moody do in 1977 at Oshkosh, a year after this 76 introduction, uh, and he was using an easy riser with a, the, a pretty much the same engine setup, uh, but didn't probably show the best judgment in the uh, conditions that he decided to try mm-hmm. it out for the first time. Uh, low ceiling, uh, 12 to 15 miles an hour, which he likes, going to shorten his takeoff roll. Uh, but gusting into the high 20s, mm-hmm. oh. which is not what you want in something as pitch sensitive as a riser or an Icarus. Right. So, yeah. so we watched him tuck and then do another 360 and land upside down. Walked away. Good. But for some time afterward, I was convinced the idea of engines on hang gliders was 
as crazy as skydiving, and we'd, <laughs> yeah, which we'd already tried that, and knew how crazy that was. Yeah, right. So, so hats yeah. off to the magazine. Yeah, good article. Check out the magazine, the article in the magazine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also on the website, obviously, and on the website. Yeah, Jeb, what do you got? Um, well, we talked about uh, um, the European Space Agency and uh, their uh, Rosetta spacecraft uh, orbiting a comet, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, landing on the comet. Um, and it's now time to give uh, NASA a little, maybe a kudo. We hope it's, it's going to be a kudo. Um, next week, as we're sitting here recording this, um, NASA will conduct the first launch. It's a test launch. It's unmanned launch, uh, but none, a launch nonetheless of the Orion spacecraft, which is the new, uh, new tech, uh, next generation um Spacecraft that is designed to be uh, the NASA's uh, main vehicle back and forth to orbit for, for carrying uh, crew back and forth for carrying crew back and forth to orbit exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, basically shaped like an Apollo spacecraft the, on steroids uh, though on, on steroids. It's a little bit bigger in that it seats four instead of just three. Um, I would I thought it was more than four, but okay, yeah, yeah. I, I, at least four. Yep. Um, uh, it's um, I, I would guess you know. Uh, larger in other dimensions also. I don't know if it, you know, the Apollo spacecraft is fairly small. You can barely shoehorn three people into it, much less uh, uh, um, try to get somebody else in. But um, uh, they're be testing this that launches um, on the 4th of December. Uh, I think four orbits or, or something like that. It is going orbital. I was going to ask you that. Yes, it is. It, well, well, it's one full orbit, uh, uh, maybe two orbits almost. Still, yeah. Complete, yeah, which is going to be almost, uh, uh, I guess, three or four hours uh, uh, test orbit, test flight for this craft. And then obviously um, a recovery. They're going to... Then hopefully, knock wood, a yeah. recovery, yeah. And it's uh, going to come down parachute like the uh, like the Apollos did. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. This is not a shuttle-like device. They're not trying to... Or craft, I should say. They're not trying to reuse it. They're not trying to fly it in the atmosphere. Uh, they're trying to figure out ways to get to and from... Get people to and from orbit... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, with some regularity, some safety, yeah. and, and some uh, economy. Well, that'll be pretty cool. I hope they yeah, I think, are at I least think on so. the net. It's, uh, it's yeah. a blast from the past, boy. The days when those things used to come down under under multiple canopies. That was, oh yeah, uh, that's yeah. This is very cool. This is the first time you know a lot of people will see that mm-hmm. uh, live. Yep. You know, you and I, and you know, all three of us anyway, have seen that kind of thing live, or at least via television. Um, but uh, there's a young. whole generation or two. That, I yeah, was very young, one or two or. Dave was Dave was like you know, the bosun's mate on the freaking carrier, but um, <laughs> sorry, Dave. Sorry. <laughs> Eat your heart out. <laughs> so that's the December fourth. Yes, December four, and of course it won't last but two or three hours. But uh, uh, all very cool. All all fingers and toes are crossed. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, next generation space capsule. What's I wrong? Know, yeah. I know. Yeah. So. Um, I've got one more here. Um, speaking of, I don't know, there's, there's a segue in here about, about the old days. Um, so a couple episodes ago, uh, I talked about um, a video that EAA had posted uh, f- of, from the uh, One Week Wonder Build. And, uh, and I was crowing about the fact that I found, I think, I'm pretty sure I found myself in that video. Well, I looked, and I'm not in this video. Um, this is a video they posted, a pair of videos they posted in the last couple weeks. Um, sh- very short videos, a few minutes each of clips from... Um, one clip, uh, one short video from of clips from the 1950s era 
EAA fly-ins um, long before it was called AirVenture. And uh, these were the Milwaukee conventions. And then about a week or so later, they posted another short uh, video of clips from the 60s editions of the uh, of the fly-in when it was in Rockford. And uh, if you're an EA fan like me, it's just this is very, very heartwarming to watch these things. Um, each of them featured brief um, uh, uh, glimpses of uh, Paul Poverezny, the, the founder of, of EAA, who we lost just recently. And, uh, and it's just, you know... It's it's really funny because it's 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 the remarkable videos to watch for a couple of different reasons. First of all, some things are so foreign looking. Um, the way people dressed, even when they were out <laughs> yeah. for a Saturday afternoon at a at a at a you know outdoor event, was was very different than the way we dress now. Um, on the other hand, I'm not exaggerating to say I recognize airplanes in these videos that we still see flying at AirVenture today. Yeah. Um, so it's just like and, and some that I'd never seen before, and some that we've never seen before. Um, um, but uh, I urge people to uh, track down these two videos, and perhaps by the time you hear this, wait a second. Know. There's a, there's the newspaper office. I, it could be. I, I it could uh, well. I'm kidding, but it could well be. It could well be. Uh, that wasn't the newspaper back office back then. The, what is now the newspaper office? Of course, uh, we're proud to say was once the uh, EAA and convention headquarters. And uh, so I, I didn't see that one. I was mostly looking for me, so I didn't see that kind of stuff. But anyways, cool videos. And uh, and it almost feels like they're going to do a series of these. I hope they are. Um, but so far, they've issued two videos, one for the 50s and one for the 60s. And uh, uh, just really cool bits of both aviation history and EAA history. So when was the first when was the first year for Oshkosh? First year for 70. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 70, 69, something like that. Yeah. 70. 70. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that was the first year that the fly-in was in Oshkosh. Um and, still- and the guy that was res- partially responsible for that move uh is in that 60s video clip. Uh he's the little short balding guy in the center of a uh, group of people. Would that be Whitman? On screen, yes, it is. Yeah, uh, shortly I, I, after, you see a Whitman Tailwind sitting uh, in the shot. I, I wouldn't recognize Whitman by, by by sight, unfortunately. I'm sorry to say, but uh, that's cool too. Yeah, a lot of great history. So, so uh, kudos to EAA for putting these together, and I hope they keep it up. I'd love to see the 70s, 80s, and 90s versions, and I'm st- I'll be on the lookout for me in in any of these videos. I'll take well, in the, in the 60s glimpse. one. I, there was a lady pushing a stroller, but I didn't get a good enough look at the baby oh, to see been. whether you were there. You never know. You never know. Anyways. Anything else, David? Oh, you've got one, David, that's really close. We really want to make sure we don't forget this this time. Cause uh, I yeah, this time. we want to do one more here, uh, and we'll make it quick and easy, and hopefully you, it'll cost you 99 cents. Uh, and that's what it, it, what it costs to download our friend uh, Jim Winbrandt's Homeless This Christmas uh, music video. Uh, money goes to benefit the homeless uh, during the season, and... Uh, gives James some uh, well-earned, well-deserved exposure for writing this piece of work and then getting it produced into a very high-quality piece of uh, uh, high-depth video. Yeah, the the music video of it is is really cool. The song is very touching. The song is very touching. The video is outstanding. Uh, uh, Jim swinging way above his height and weight. Yeah, James has got more talent in his little finger than the three of us put together. There you go. And, yeah. and just, this Absolutely. is one example of why, or yeah, how, how that talent manifests. You talk about what people were up to in the 50s and 60s. You're going to talk to James. That's, uh, yeah. you know. But anyways, yeah, the video is cool, and uh, everyone should check it out. It's on YouTube for free, and, uh, and then you can buy it from iTunes as well. Buy it from iTunes. Help out the homeless. Uh, 
give an extra kick to James' numbers and uh, make yourself feel better this Christmas. Yeah. Very, very good. Very, very good. Definitely reaching the end of our allotted time here. Uh, thanks, guys. It's always a blast to get together and chat with you. Uh, Jeb Burnside uh, is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. You've been working on anything fun, Jeb? What's going on? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, putting the finishing touches on an article for um, AEA's uh, Avionics News Magazine. Um, talking about what's what's the next um, killer app in general aviation, and specifically mm-hmm. avionics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's that going to be? What's it going to look like? Uh, you know, obviously, how do we get here? Uh, and maybe there's some clues in there for what's going to be that next killer app. Uh, so that's that's going to be to bed here. Should have been to bed last week. It'll be to bed here uh, this week. Um, getting geared up for the January issue of Aviation Safety Magazine. And uh, generally just kind of having a good time with it all. Yeah, very cool. Where yeah. do people find you on the Internet? AviationSafetyMagazine.com, AEA.net, uh, sometimes on a Twitter machine and very rarely uh, on Facebook. And uh, Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's Av Buyer Magazine, formerly known as World Aircraft Sales. David, what have you been working on? Uh, <laughs> uh, I've been trying to look it up. I'm so uh, sorry that I stump you. I trick you with bringing this question up. I know you. No, I've, I've, I've been trying to get the files open for the last three or four minutes, knowing that this was coming. You've got and the files I had, you know, last episode. For some reason or another, I can't make open what I expect to open. Okay. So I'm going to let you play with your files by, while, I say, by, by, <laughs> while I say I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot and a freelance writer and a new media producer. Uh, in addition to uh, making apple pies and eating way too much uh, for Thanksgiving, uh, I continue to uh, dabble in iPhone software development, which will uh, hopefully produce some stuff that might be interesting to uh, GA folks uh, after the new year. We'll see. I definitely um, have an application in mind. And... Uh, and and some other things I'm, I'm working on that, that should be fun. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash Jack Hodgson. You can learn more about me than you really, really ever wanted to know at jackhodgson.com and at aroundthefield.net. David, how you doing? Did you figure it out yet? So what am I doing lately when was working on some seasonally appropriate uh, 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 material for uh, my friends over in uh, London, uh, Al Beyer uh, magazine, the old world aircraft sales uh, with a story that looks at uh, the uh, considerations uh, winter considerations of ice that don't involve being aloft when you're on the ground uh, when it's runways when you need to be de-iced taxiways, how to judge whether you even want to take a chance on trying to land on a runway based on its uh, uh, well not exactly the friction rating but the runway friction condition that the, mm-hmm. the FAA reports. Mm-hmm. There's also coefficient of friction that can be used if the place has got a scientific number, but generally the FAA breaks it down to good, fair, moderate, or not good, fair, poor, or nil. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, that explains what those numbers... No, all kidding aside, I... Uh, during the big storm the other day, one of the things I like to do when I'm sitting here snowbound in, at my desk is uh, I go to liveatc.net and listen to uh, Manchester Airport. And uh, ATC.net, liveatc.net has a, a combination of ground, tower, and uh, I guess it's ground, tower, and clearance delivery. 
and it's inter- it's fun to listen to the coordination between the snowplow crews and the ground people and the tower and whatnot. And the and the snowplow people are always um, feeding numbers to to the tower to the ATC folks, um, and I was and it was apparent from the context that it had something to do with traction, but I, I didn't know what it was. That, that's interesting. Well, we deal a little bit in the article with uh, the limitations of approval for flight into known icing, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and any Fiki system maker out there will tell you that. The reason it exists is to help you escape ice, not mm-hmm. to fly in ice. Right. Uh, because they all have limitations, and if you spend too much time in the wrong kind of icing conditions, how good your Fiki system is won't matter. The weight will overwhelm your power plants, and gravity takes over. But the rest of this was predominantly about dealing with the issues that exist more on the ground than when you're on in the air. Mm-hmm. Because for a lot of Fiki-approved aircraft, uh, they have bigger issues with dealing with icing on the ground because they're going to get up through the icing layer with their Fiki systems running full tilt boogie. And they're going to be on top of it most of the time in a few minutes, mm-hmm. you know, under 10 in, very often. Sounds interesting. Uh, so this is for which publication? Avbuyer, uh, out in the December issue, and given how late this month is, uh, it's probably already in the mail. Yeah, at, F, at, at, at uh, finer FBOs everywhere. Uh, it, just about every FBO everywhere. <laughs> okay. Or online at avbuyer.com. All right. Anything else, or can you want to tell us where you can be found on the Internet? Uh, I can be found on the Internet, second stool from the left. Okay. Uh, that's the one usually right next to where the bartender, yeah. or the waitresses pick it up their drinks uh avbuyer.com aea.net uh hopefully here shortly uh, aviation safety magazine.com mm-hmm. because i'm uh, working on wrapping up something that i've owed jeb for too long so and on the twitter you are uh i think i'm real higdon you are real higdon that's right <laughs> <laughs> big thanks to jeff ward for all his uh, help with the show notes and in the forums uh thanks to mike morgan to royce earl jim goldman and all the other listeners who have created the ucap disclaimer clips don't forget also to check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. Also see who's doing what in the new ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, something you wanted to wrap up with? What were you going to tell us? Nothing brings home the uh, value of flying greater than this time of year when we all see so much of Santa Claus, who's only lived to this age because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. (laughs) Happy holidays. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. If you're not sticking that fork in some turkey, stick it in this. (laughs) 